You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of July, 2018, on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Merkel and May, the Prime Minister meets the Chancellor to talk the future of UK-EU trade, a day before a crunch cabinet meeting. I've been clear that Brexit means Brexit and the United Kingdom is going to make a success of it. But I also want to be clear here today and across Europe in the weeks ahead that we are not walking away from our European friends. My guests Joy Ladico and Ivor Gaber will be discussing the implications and the day's other top stories, including EU election reforms are happening. Will we notice a difference as voters? And the opposition in Zimbabwe is threatening to pull out of elections in the first poll in the southern African nation without Robert Mugabe. Plus, we're spoiled for choice as sports fans this month. But why would the organizers of Wimbledon and the World Cup put the final matches on the very same afternoon? I'll tell you why I may be keeping an eye on a key stage of the Tour de France that day instead. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bitch. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, Ivor Gaber and Joy Ladico. Welcome both to the program and welcome back to Midori House. Uh, Theresa May has a huge meeting tomorrow at Checkers and has quite the task at hand in trying to calm discord amongst her cabinet ministers. But today in Berlin, an important meeting with Angela Merkel over the future of trade with Europe. Joy, two leaders with uh, two very different major issues to tackle on their plates uh, outside of this. Uh, Where do they see eye to eye, if at all? Uh, well, uh, one thing they'll see eye to eye on is that Theresa May has finally given a uh, proposal uh, to, or at least a briefing, on what she sees the customs arrangement being to Angela Merkel. This has infuriated people in uh, London, her cabinet, who in fact haven't seen this briefing her- themselves. Uh, so Merkel will be pleased there's at least some clarity in front of her. Um, however, uh, we may be in again in a situation where Britain is sort of having a conversation with itself every time it takes what it thinks it has decided over to the EU 27 they say listen guys this is kind of magical thinking have you mm. not understood how this works have you not understood how the EU works uh, so we'll see from Merkel's facial expressions when she comes out of that Reminds me of the sort of, sorry, computer says no. <laughs> I mean, it, it, talk about dialogue of the deaf. Um, they're just, I mean, speaking to European colleagues, they, they say sort of, what bit don't the British understand? And it seems to them so obvious you can't pick and choose. Mm. You know, we've, we, we're a shop, we've got staying in, we've got the Cana- Canadian model, we've got the Swiss model, we've even got the Norwegian model, which one would you like? And you're in the shop saying none mm. of those. But also the, the the point of Brexit is we're saying we're leaving, but would you mind if kind of Antwerp and Rotterdam did a load of paperwork on our behalf and sent this money? And Antwerp and Rotterdam are thinking, well, um, why bother actually? Well, actually, it's interesting you mention um, Rotterdam or Antwerp, I'm not sure which one, that they're spending billions expanding the port to, to facilitate all those lorries that they know are going to be queuing. And what are we doing with putting up signs on the M20 saying there might be queues? <laughs> I mean, it, the lack of preparedness here is is. 
crazy. But sorry, that wasn't what we were talking about. No, not at all. Uh, There are reports today from a paper circulated amongst cabinet ministers that May's proposals would make a trade deal with the U.S. uh, hard to agree upon or impossible because the U.K. would have to be more closely aligned with the policies of the single market. So uh, before President Trump arrives for a visit here, May has uh, perhaps killed a U.S. trade deal, but uh, made life easier uh, for Merkel. What do you think, Joy? Um, well, again, this is the great bind. We keep saying, well, let's, um, let's, shall we follow the single market or shall we begin to diverge? The minute we begin to diverge, we're out in the open seas and mm. we can begin to talk to um, new partners. But again, our strongest partner on almost every single trade uh, of physical goods is Europe. Uh, and so it is in our best interest to stay there. Um, I, I'm slightly baffled as to who's giving her the advice within uh her own cabinet office at the moment and Dexu because the two things are clearly inconsistent. We've now been doing this for 18 months and you have to just jump one way or the other Mm -hmm. eventually. And the other fly in this particular ointment is I think President Trump has made it crystal clear that nobody's going to do a good trade deal with him. So the idea that we're putting all our eggs in that basket is crazy because as he's demonstrated with the, the, the tariffs the current tariffs, he's making no exceptions for us now and he won't make any exceptions for us then. Well, it makes that Trump comes over in at the end of next week. Um, And what in theory, what should happen is there should be a couple of staged announcements where Trump and May say this is fantastic and we've agreed an amazing new deal for um, washing machine parts between the US and the UK. But any announcement she now makes will be scrutinised by the EU to see whether in fact it's fallen Mm. within single market rules Uh, and whether in fact she's now trying to undercut the single market. And even if they do make that announcement, by the time President Trump's on his plane, whether he's heading to Europe, he will have denounced it on Twitter anyway, Mm. saying that Mrs May, she's bad-mouthed me, you can't trust a single thing she says. I mean, we're just in a terrible bind. Well, the other problem that Theresa May going over to see Angela Merkel is, again, Britain... Britain's problems are fairly far down her list. Mm. I mean, she's dealing with EU reforms, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, you've got the uh, refugee problem that continues mm. going on. We've got uh, Trump in trying to impose tariffs on goods. Um, we are in becoming small fry, um, just merely by c- going back over and over again with fairly little progress. And we're nearly at kind of the end of our um, negotiating road anyway. And whilst Mrs May is battling with her Brexiteers, Mrs Merkel is battling with Mr Steve Holt and mm-hmm. his, his people... That's not resolved yet. I mean, she is not. She's not in a. If she was in a stronger position, she might be able to pull rank and say, "Okay, Theresa, let's all girls stick together. I'll do you a favour." You know, she is. A, she is a. She is a. I would say she's a marginalised figure, mm. but she's not the Mrs. Merkel who bestrode the EU a couple of years ago. And the person she should have gone to see perhaps was Macron, but Macron, I think, has, has you know created such a sort of tough line against the UK mm. cherry picking that I think maybe the the hopes were that. Merkel was the one more likely to yield. Mm. I want to dig into this just a little bit more. Uh, May today told Merkel she believes her cabinet tomorrow can discuss a substantive way forward, which uh, would up the pace and intensity of uh, UK-EU relations, as negotiations, as she put it. Uh, How is that possible, uh, Ivor? And is Merkel buying the usual uh, catchphrases of the British PM here? Well, I mean, I think what we tend to forget that is that the Mrs. Merkel and the German politicians and everybody else reads our papers, knows exactly what's going on. The idea that somehow she can convince them that she will take care of the cabinet, that they're going to step in line, you know, suggests that they've never heard of Boris Johnson. 
they've never heard of Jacob Rees-Mogg, they are mm. following this in, in great detail. And to think you can say one thing in Berlin and another thing in Chequers is bonkers. I think there's one thing in Merkel's favour, which is that a lot of people have been throwing their toys out. A lot of her cabinet have been throwing their toys out of the pram and briefing the press and so forth. Um, one of the cabinet ministers the other day said that, that this whole plan was Transylvanian. It was a Frankenstein that had to have a stake mm. uh, driven through its heart. I can't. Ma- can you imagine who would have briefed mm. me in that language? Um, but in the end, they don't walk away. And Theresa May has this incredible ability to just keep rolling through these arguments and say, OK, now this is the date we're going to make a decision. Mm. You can all flounce around. You can all brief the press as much as you like. But we have to get to a decision at this point in time. So the kind of really interesting thing that will happen tomorrow is if, if anybody does indeed walk on principle. Uh, and so far... Nobody has. Uh, well, Brexiteer, Brexiteers say a deal uh, will keep the UK in the EU customs sphere, uh, sort of a betrayal of what the Leave voters wanted in the first place. Isn't that right? Yeah, but and, and Mrs May has created, has bound herself in. She said only very recently in, in previous questions, no customs union, no single market, no European Court of Justice, no common agricultural policy. Mm. I mean, she's creating these re- false expectations that she can deliver. Um, I mean, I, I I love the idea that um, the, the Brussels is essentially saying to the UK, well, you can have what you want, but you just have to chop off that little bit called Northern Ireland and give it to us, and then then you can do what you want. <laughs> and for some reason, the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland don't appear entirely happy with it. I can't understand why. It seems to me a perfectly sensible arrangement. Uh, I want to stay in Europe now and just uh, turn the page. Uh, we'll see if we get any clarity tomorrow uh, from Checkers, and I'm glad you're both here to give me so- any clarity on Brexit. Uh, Nobody has any idea. Yeah, okay, at the fair, uh, fair. I thought it was just <laughs> I thought it was just me as a foreigner, but okay, fair enough. Uh, staying in Europe, members of the European Parliament have voted for changes in how one can vote in European elections. After more than two years of negotiation, the changes have been decided by a healthy majority in Parliament. Uh, three key issues passed uh, will allow inter voting, allow EU citizens to vote from non-EU countries, and put in place tough penalties for those who vote in more than one country. Uh, Joy, are these important changes? Well, they haven't exactly made headline news, um, which I think is interesting in itself because it speaks about how uh, we as citizens across Europe uh, relate to the European Parliament, and it will make relatively little difference to us. these these particular changes will make relatively little difference to us. They mm. will facilitate some sorts of voting. It will make it easier for some people. But as I said, it's not exactly kind of, you know, broken the internet. But it should have well, not broken the internet. But the, behind it is this really serious problem of, I mean, forget Britain and EU for the moment, but mm. the lack of interest, excitement and voter turnout for European elections virtually across Europe. Um, We think we're particularly uninterested, but we're not. We're averagely uninterested, you know, about a third turnout for European parliamentary elections, which is not dissimilar. There are some countries that are more enthusiastic, (laughs) some countries that are less. So on the one, I do applaud the attempt to inject some sort of new way of exciting the, the European electorate. But, you know, it's a bit of a damp squid in the mm. end. And, I mean, just take you one example. Take one example. How are they going to check double voting? You can't... Ch- How are they going to check double voting that I voted in... Well, I won't vote in the UK because we might be out, but I voted in France and then I voted Italy. I think it is beyond the com- the capabilities of any electoral commission that I've dealt with, and I've dealt with a few. But at the heart of it, uh, more people can vote in their own countries or from abroad or on the internet. That's a win anyways, isn't it? Yeah, and I think voting, even if you're not in in your own country, is a win, and it does give a sense of communitaire, as they say in Brussels. Um- 
there is. I mean, internet voting, as you can probably explain, is very controversial in terms of security. But when we are in the Facebook generation where, you know, all the political messages are now going through social media, there is one Philip in this, which is the people who would uh, would have not gone out to actually vote or taken a paper vote may indeed actually engage if there is an internet process and a series of buttons mm. to click. Well, I mean, the Labour Party in this country were brilliantly successful in 2017 in using Facebook to get people, to, young people to mm. go out and vote. So I think that is a good point. I mean, the, the point Joy refers to in terms of internet safety, I did some work for the Electoral Commission a few years ago investigating the feasibility of online voting. And this is before the days of fake news and Russian intervention. And even then, they said, no, there is no way of hermetically sealing a voting system that we could guarantee that there wouldn't be any interference. Well, um, there is, uh, within in the UK, there is a system now whereby you can identify yourself um, through a government website. So arguably, uh, they have got the level of technology and uh, background checking to get there. I mean, it's now quite common for me to sign in for my tax records through this. So it's possible we're getting there. Um, what's missing in this story is, in fact, the kind of a great background to it, mm. which is Macron had proposed all sorts of radical reforms, including transnational candidates um, for uh, transnational lists, transnational lists right. for the EU Parliament to, to try and get people more excited in the process of it and trying to open up the conversation. And that got nowhere. And that was that was dropped at the beginning of this year. So there is a, you know, the reform is a small reform. It's not a radical reform mm. at all. Uh, and it's, it says something that the, the Parliament itself does not want to has not passed a series of reforms. Well, as I understand it, and I, like you, are not a complete expert on the... I thought it was the Commission that blocked the notion of transnational... Lists. I think it was the Commission, but Parliament was, I think, not that interested either. I mean, there was a sort of general... There's a general feeling that you that Macron had rolled in from France with who and managed to completely reform the system, uh, and he was trying to then reform what was going on within the European Parliament to make it more efficient, and he called it uh, ideological clarification, uh, and met that kind of wall of resistance that you do every so often in the EU from various places. Well, it's the nature of the EU. It's got. A, it's a bit like the American political system with so many checks and balances right. between the Commission, the the Council. Actually, I think it might have been the European Council that finally blocked it. But between those three competing plant blocks, it's almost guaranteed to create stasis, to create immobility. And, a, you know, a lot of time is spent debating a lot of things in the European system and not many of them move forward. But I'm not criticising it because those are attempts to transparency and accountability and so forth. It's just it makes things very, very slow. Even with that bureaucracy and that, that difficulty of, of, of making changes, uh, will we see a tangible difference in any upcoming votes, any you can think of? Well, um, what's going to be interesting is whether you can try and quell the, uh, what happens in in elections is that you, the, those who feel most passionate about the EU and it's mostly negative passions will go out and vote. That's what motivates a huge number of votes, which is why um, you will have you know five star movement from Italy is quite heavily represented uh, in from the UK. UKIP got an extraordinary number of seats in um, in the European Parliament, considering got absolutely zero here. So if you begin to expand not the kind of franchise, but the accessibility to voting, would you then engage a kind of more mainstream sort of well, electorate? Up to, up to a point. I mean, one of the things that uh, political scientists talk about second-order elections, general elections and everything else, second-order elections, and generally, and this, the second-order elections include referenda, people, you're absolutely right, it's negative, but people in general just vote against the government. 
per se. They use it as a as a plebiscite on the government. And the danger, if it is danger, is that more and more of these outlandish parties, if you like, will actually get representation because people are voting against the government or voting against the opposite. They're voting against the elite. And so I could see... Well, I, I think UKIP are dead, but country, parties like Alternative for Deutschland... Well, also, our, our, our mm. admission to the, the European Parliament is also dead, so in fact... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I prevent there will be detail. no UKIP MEPs. <laughs> um, but Alternative for Deutschland, Five Star, I think yeah. they will benefit from increased interest in the European sure. Parliament, not for European reasons, but for national reasons. We've seen uh, member states push back uh, in the EU on a number of issues recently, notably migration, debt restructuring, things like that. Uh, but is this an update countries can get behind, Joy? Well, as I said, I think it's quite a minor update. So yeah, it's, yeah, not minor, actually, yeah. it's, it's literally one of the few things that is not going to cause a controversy at this particular right. point in time. <laughs> um, I think they get, there are, again, bigger issues on the table. Right. This is about, this is, you know, the point is about the EU. It's a big, fat legal institution. Um, lots of complaints about not enough democracy. And in fact, there's too much democracy in it. And here we are, you know, d- debating and finally passing some very minor adjustments. And in fact, the big issues are, are not on the table. In th- This is not where they're going to be discussing the big issues. This is not going to have them up and up, up at their seats cheering for more Europe, more Europe. Um, but Orban is not going to give a speech against internet right. voting, unless I'm very much mistaken. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Joy Ladiko, and Ivor Gaber. Coming up next, we look at elections in Zimbabwe. The rolling hills of Somerset might not be the most usual spot for a world-class art space, but it proved to be the perfect fit for Hauser and Worth, an international art gallery with its heart in the countryside. Monocle Films reviews a weird and wonderful show that looks at our relationship with the land. We used to base our knowledge, our experience of the world, on the land, on nature, on the other beings that shared the world. Now we don't. So I'm trying to, in a way, re-establish a relationship to a form of knowledge that could be useful for us. Somerset's Strange Fruit, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Welcome back. Still with me, Joy Ladiko and Ivor Gaber. We're going to stick with elections, but head to Zimbabwe now, which is preparing to vote for a new president on the 30th of July. But for those uh, that imagine the first election without Robert Mugabe in 37 years uh, would be smooth, they will perhaps be disappointed. Mugabe was ousted by the military and his successor, President Emerson Mnangagwa, has promised a free and fair vote. But Zimbabwe's main opposition leader, Nelson Chamisa, threatened to pull out if there is no agreement between the independent Elections Agency and political parties on the actual ballot papers. First of all, uh, how is Zimbabwe doing post Mugabe? Well, it's better than oh, mm. economically. It's it's mixed. There are some signs of investment coming back. I was reading a piece I, um, this morning about how the planes now have investors on board. Um, but you know, it's a long. It takes a long time to regain re- regain confidence. A big problem. Well, Zimbabwe has two big economic problems before we come to political. One is mm. they're a dollar-based country and they're running out of dollars and they cannot get any loans from the International Monetary Fund because they cannot put up... They're, they're not eligible. If you haven't got your own currency, you're not eligible to get loans from the International Monetary Fund. They're hoping for debt forgiveness. Remember that? Because they have got huge international debts, and but there's no great appetite for it because there's a lot of people in the international community who say debt forgiveness did not work. Um, that, so that on that front, they've got problems. They've got problems in terms of world 
some of the bulb commodity prices have, have not been moving in that direction. But having said that, there is, from my knowledge of the country, some signs of confidence. They are renegotiating with the white farmers. Um, there's some very interesting developments going on there where they're trying to work out bring, pulling the back because economic agricultural production has mm. crashed. However, to come back to elections, um, old habits die hard. Um, you know, elections in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, have been, in many countries, not all of them, in many countries, problematic. Um, and just to come back to the point you made right at the beginning, in your introduction, you talked about the Independent Electoral Commission. Electoral commissions are absolutely central in African elections, play a major important role, and not too many of them independent. And this one is dominated mm. by the military, who orchestrated the coup against Mugabe and who uh, Mr. Mama, um, the president, <laughs> um, is um, part of that structure. So I just don't think they can yet let go. But, you know, I have to say, it's nobody's being killed, nobody's being locked up. So this, that's progress. Ish. Uh, this story does uh, doesn't read that differently to other elections uh, in surrounding African nations, perhaps. Uh, why are they so difficult to carry out, Joy? I don't know. I mean, it also reminds me of sort of every other election I've ever tuned in on for, mm. for Zimbabwe, which uh, seems to be a British fascination, uh, where you sort of think, it, I mean, every four or five years, it's exactly the same story about, you know, failure to do proper voter registration, uh, intimidation. Um, I mean, apparently this time the army is going to be escorting the ballot boxes, this army that is not particularly neutral. At what point does an external force come in in order to um, to run these elections properly? At what point does South Africa come in and say, "Look, why don't you just franchise it out to us?" You'll, you'll have a proper answer to that. But um, the um, the the lack of progress on uh, free and fair elections means that the next four or five years continues to be contested um, by the disgruntled opposition who will may not even stand but you know are likely to lose anyway already on polling numbers but also again with those same accusations that um you know their voters have been intimidated they haven't had access to the same media and so forth i mean in theory i stress in yeah. theory the electoral observation missions and a particularly important one called sadec which is the south african development company which is the countries of southern africa their verdict on the conduct of elections in southern africa is supposed to carry weight. It, it is, but it, of course, um, they weren't allowed in under Mugabe, to be fair, and, 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 and under the new president, they are being allowed in as are European um, observers. But could you ever see SADC overturning an election? I mean, it's all very well to give a verdict afterwards, but the point is it gets replayed three or four years later with no, again, no particular well, progress. I... I, 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 I can't see, I don't know of SADC ever over, oh, they can't overturn elections mm. such, but for example, I mean, in a number of African countries I've been involved in and I have been involved in election missions, observation missions, um, we do a damning verdict of saying there wasn't sufficient media freedom, there wasn't this, there wasn't that, and it gets played a bit like there was a British minister who had to apologise in the, in, the, in the House of Commons yesterday for misinterpreting an official report, mm. um, in other words, saying black was white. And the countries where we, we report, they either shrug it off, accuse the um, electoral 
um, observation teams are being biased or or twisted, but they have no power. Nobody has power unless you've got a gun. But when and that you, not, yeah, but when you're talking about foreign investors coming to a country, what you need is those markers of democracy, of uh, lack of corruption, of good legal institutions, which in fact Zimbabwe weirdly has, mm. um, in order to make that country a, a good investment potential. Uh, and the minute those countries start rising up the rankings, people start going there. Yeah. But the election, the, the the idea of a free and fair election is one of those crit- critical points, and yet, well, there, neither no... neither Zanipuf, PF, or any you know any previous mm-hmm. incarnation of it can deliver it. With one, the, you're right, but and the but is China. Chinese government do not worry about free and fair elections when they're making investment decisions in Africa. Now, um, and th- actually, even they. Well, with that, with held, back, <laughs> held back from Kirby, but they are now very interested. And one of the um, calculations, and the British have been sending um, British government missions there because they're worried about China establishing itself in Zimbabwe, as they have in many other parts of the world, because they do not, I can't understand why not, but they don't seem to be very bothered about free and fair elections. I can't, I can't imagine why. It's, it's It'd be hypocritical <laughs> if they did, really. <laughs> it's strange that. But it does mean that it is possible to have a model of economic development which is bereft of any democratic underpinnings. So it's, you know, and as China itself um, has had terrific economic development with no... So it, we don't have all of the cards in our hand, in a sense. And there are a number of African countries, which Angola is one example, which has got hu- has economically developed very, very rapidly with not an ounce of democratic process involved. Absolutely fascinating. I think we could stay here for a while and we uh, will look back at uh, the Zimbabwe elections uh, in the coming weeks as well. I just want to move on now uh, to one final item. Uh, This time of year, always a good time of year for sports fans, you could argue, and any time of year is is like that, depending on what you follow. Uh, But this July in particular is a very special month on the calendar and July 15th could be the most epic sports day you could ever dream up. The Tour de France for me, a cycling fan, will take on the unforgiving cobbled roads uh, toward Roubaix in northern France. This is a make-or-break stage. Uh, the final match of the World Cup will be played in Russia, and on the very same afternoon, the men's singles final will be played at Wimbledon. And therein lies the controversy. FIFA has decided to kick off their match at 4pm uh, British time, which has uh, confused Wimbledon organizers because the men's final always starts at 2. Uh, is there an issue for either of you here? Are we just spoiled for choice. Well, the big question in my mind, given your Tour de France, is uh, mm. if French make if France makes the World Cup final, you're going to have a, a big, the, the French population are going to be very divided. But also, is there are there, are there any top play, uh, French players in Wimbledon? That's a good well, point. Well, I mean, Federer is regarded as virtually French. He's a French speaking. Lives just on the other side of. He probably lives in Monaco, which makes mm. him French anyway. So, in fact, it's the French who are going to be split three ways. But there are two Monfils who's defeated Busquet on Mm. Monday. I only know that because I was there. Um, It's possible. It will be fascinating to see what what the French side... And I have a particular interest in this because I'm going to be in France. Oh, there you have it. On the the Ile de Ré. With three televisions watching everything The Tour de France might not (laughs) grab me quite as as much as it would you, but I I think there's a genuine issue here. Um, and it might seem it is relatively trivial compared to what we've been discussing but sporting the lack of cooperation collaboration between sporting bodies in terms of the audience as opposed to the sponsors right. um, Olympics are a particular 
Benoit there. I mean, it is an arrogance of sporting officials. Oh, we don't do the spectators. It's just, you know, one says FIFA, one says the International Olympic Committee, and one are bywords for disdain and arrogance. And but uh, perhaps, as you say, uh, FIFA can do as they want the size of the, of the sport globally. But you would think, uh, rightly, for sponsors, they would want the most eyeballs possible. And uh, perhaps an asterisk on this is that the Tour de France moved uh, their start to a week later than normal to make sure that that the key stages in the Alps, the very interesting mountain stages that may decide the race, uh, don't line up with that World Cup final. So why is then not Wimbledon well, making a move? Well, Wim- well, I mean, can you imagine yeah. Wimbledon? Wimbledon it, a thoroughly English, yeah. you know, it's got its strawberries. It knows, it knows when peak strawberry season is. It always holds it on this week, every single year. And how dare these kind of yob footballers oh, ask mm. us to move? Yeah. Meanwhile, the footballers are saying, oh my God, it's just two guys in a, you know, one ball back and forth. Come on, we can't possibly move it for them. I can see exactly why this got to an well, impasse. There is a certain quaintness about um, Wimbledon and perhaps there is about other Grand Slam tournaments, although I can't imagine the Australian Open being quite as quaint. But it does attract... When I go, uh, go to Wimbledon, I'm a keen tennis fan. You know, the bemused look of foreigners when, for example, they, oh, there's centre court, I'll go in there. And they're told, oh, don't, don't be silly. You can't quite go there, yeah. <laughs> um, and is it, do, am I speaking in favour of this? I don't know. It's, it's, it is very, very English in some very good ways, but also in the, the small C conservatism. The idea, they have a big screen called, opposite what's called Henman Hill, the details of which we needn't detain us here, but they're refusing to show any football on that screen because that's not what we do at Wimbledon even if England in the World Cup final. I, th- I think what's going to be wonderful, though, is the oohs and ahs on the streets right. of London that particular afternoon. It's sort of, you'll hear the kind of football cheers going up mm. and then you'll hear the kind of, you know, tie-break final. And a few point. of us packed in a small cycling yeah. cafe were perhaps <laughs> be cheering as well. Uh, interesting uh, that they may have fans at, at, at multiple events watching these different uh, games and matches unfold, but uh, I, I guess doing watching the World Cup on your phone at Wimbledon is perhaps better than doing it in the front stage well, of a theatre production which did happen uh, when England was in penalties this week. Did it? Oh, the production think, of think, Titanic. I, I, I think I, that's yeah. forgivable. I actually. have a very brief claim to fame that um, in the European Championships where England were playing Portugal, I was at Wimbledon watching Andy Murray. It was a semi-final. Um, it was a few years ago. I was watching it on my phone and everybody was crowding round and the steward came up and admonished me and told me to put it away immediately because you weren't allowed to do that. So I... <laughs> Um, and what I did is I left the ground and watched the penalty shootout. Well, we, which we lost, <laughs> of course. Well, we're winners now, England. Uh, anyways, that uh, is the end of today's show. Joy Ladico, Ivor Gaber, thank you very much for joining us here on Midori House. Back tomorrow at eighteen hundred London time. Thank you for listening. I'm Daniel Beach. Goodbye.